You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitate at support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Howdy, Stella. How are you? I am good. I'm very good. We're going to have a listener's episode. Yes, we're going to answer more of the questions that we've received. You know, we, we've we really gotten some fascinating questions that have sparked a lot of ideas for episodes we've done recently, and there are several more episodes that we plan to do that were inspired by listener questions. So thank you all for submitting them. We get messages through Instagram, through Facebook, through YouTube. all kinds of... Carrier pigeon, every, every special kind of way. <laughs> um, we also get lots of insights and comments and they're really, really good. And they really make me think. And I, I love it. And sometimes they might be critical and say, you missed this. And I think you're right. We did miss it and we will have to revisit it. So the, the, the thing about gender is it's so complex because it goes to the essence of who we are. So it, it's, it's as deep as you want it. Yeah. And um, people can always add another layer that I haven't thought of. So I, I just think it's such a such a compelling subject. And yes. people who are in the in the kind of trenches because they're in deep distress, they're thinking about it deeper than any of us. And That's they can right. really add to our understanding. So it's very welcome if anybody wants to contact and, us on any of the platforms. Yeah, and to add on to that, I mean, we've also received feedback that have inspired us to ask specific guests onto the program. Yeah. So we have some really great guests coming up for everyone and we think you'll enjoy it. And we're really excited to speak with them. So yeah, it's really, really thought provoking to hear from our listeners. Yeah. I never knew when we started that we'd be so led by the listeners, but you can't help but be because the, the ideas they're coming up with are so amazing. I thought you we'd be give, all about it. We'd be in control. I know. Well, no, you have to give the yeah. people what they want, Stella. Yeah. You have to. <laughs> you populist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're a politician. No, actually, it's genuinely they have been so compelling, the questions, and so thought-provoking that we thought, oh, my God, yeah, we have to mm-hmm. deal with this. Mm-hmm. So will we have a look at some of the questions? Do you want to read the first one? Sure. So we titled this question, what can I say to her? Is there a counter script? So the listener asks, you often talk about a script that kids are finding online to send to their parents. Since it's pretty clear that most of these kids will write in their script, is there any way to equip parents with a kind of counter script to respond to their kids that would at least encourage deeper thinking on the part of the teen? I know some kids are not receptive to any challenge, but some kids like mine are. So what do you think of that question? I think it's a brilliant question. Now, this is a real example that I never thought of. And as soon as I said, saw it, I went, Eureka, this is needed. Mm. Very needed. (laughs) This needs to be addressed. For those that don't know, there is a very common scenario called the script where uh, the child might have said nothing. They might have got very quiet. They might have gone online a lot. They might have been in their bedroom a lot and then suddenly arrived with a very articulate, sophisticated um powerfully educational informative script yeah and it's a script and the parent is halfway between being extraordinarily impressed with the child's articulate wisdom and sophisticated uh thought processes and horror at the child has misunderstood themselves and misread all their distress and kind of come up with a a frankly kind of unsustainable solution because of who they are and how the parent knows them. So it feels very, very difficult because you're like, this is amazing. Look at the words, look at the words they use. Look at the concepts they're bringing over. And this script is very often, you've spoke about it very eloquently. So do you want to talk a little bit about it? But you've called it Mm -hmm. a kind of cookie cutter. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think another reaction that parents often have is like, this doesn't sound like you. Like, where did you get this? Because so I know how you talk. Like <laughs> I mean, not in, a, not in a way to demean the child's intelligence, but like the, 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 the cadence, the language, the word choices, 
a lot of parents will say, gosh, this just didn't sound like my kid. I didn't really recognize this. I've read lots of her poems or her stories. This just doesn't sound like her. So that's another kind of reaction that I hear from parents. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's tricky because um, I think parents do need to have some sort of ideas they can fall back on consistently that express their authentic views on things without necessarily getting into some kind of like back and forth debate, which we'll talk about this a little bit later too. Um, but I don't know if there's a particular script that is universal that will work for every family. And I kind of like what mom implied in this question is my daughter is really interested and receptive to talking. And so you really have to come up with maybe a couple of statements that you can fall back on that apply to your family, to your relationship with your child and to your stance. You know, like if historically you have been, you know, of a certain kind of political persuasion, don't pick a statement that that will seem out of place for your kid. You know, the whole point is your child is saying something that doesn't sound like her. You don't want to say something that doesn't sound like you. You have to be authentic. I mean, this is, I think, where the word authentic is important and applicable. It's overused, but you have to be authentic. I think it's it's overused, but uh, poorly used. Yeah. And I think we have to bring back authenticity into an authentic place. Um, I, I, I would like you for, for starters, just for anybody who doesn't know, what is usually said in the script? Mm. Mom, I know you've always thought that you had a daughter and um, I know that this might seem weird for you, but I've been doing a lot of soul searching and educating myself about gender. And I have come to terms with the fact that I'm actually your son. And this will not change anything about me. I'm the same person I've always been, but rather than having a daughter, you have a son. And I would like to proceed by using those pronouns, these pronouns. I would like to come out to grandparents. I'd need your help for that. And like, sometimes there's a list of like, here's what we'd like to do next. I don't yeah. know if that resonates with what you've heard, but oh, that's massively. like a general template. And very often, I don't know if it's the same where you are, but um, certainly in Ireland, they they assure the parents, "We're not. I'm not going to go near um, drugs or hormones and stuff like that. I'm not going to do that. I might do it in the future, but they often mm. change. It's very <laughs> noticeable that the, at the start they kind of make these declarations, which the parent grabs, saying, "Okay, okay, they're not going to they're not going to do this," and then the the the, the child changes that point. That's it's interesting. What, it's really noticeable. Now, I've yeah. often is that here where it's just not such a medicalized situation as it is in America. I actually hear both. I mean, I think there are some kids who say, you know, I just want to try on identities to yeah. see what feels right. You know, that kind of perfect fit theory that we talked about in a previous episode. But I often hear kids say, I would like to start hormones or I'd like to get top surgery or the plan is when I'm 18, I will do these things. So I think maybe kids in the States and Canada are more primed for the idea of medical intervention. I get that impression too. It feels mm -hmm. inevitable while mm -hmm. it, do it doesn't feel ine inevitable here. That, that's one thing I've noticed, the difference in the kind of script that they've absorbed the very same YouTube videos, but they've, reached a slightly different conclusion and said not for me or certainly not yet for me but they tend to change anyway they tend to change a few months into it they do feel like they uh think if i try it on and if it fits therefore i am trans right uh, that's the kind of concept and a very um like you say informing almost educating the parent a very presumptuous that the, the parents often with links like it'll you know kids yeah. will email their parents with a bunch of links like here's a parent resource page you can go to educate yourself about gender yeah it's very helpful so what about the script for parents what do you think about this idea I think it's a phenomenal idea I think it's a really good idea I think it's very important I've said it a million times but I'm going to say it again it's very important that parents wear their authority that they carry their authority that they don't kind of bow down to you know everything about trans, you understand these 17 acronyms and therefore you know more than me. 
I think mm. it's incredibly important that parents instead go, go quiet, go silent, educate themselves on their own terms, learn mm. about it, and then come back with all the wisdom of their age and their experience and their intelligence and their education and and become quite um, authoritative about it. And so therefore they should have their own script, but it shouldn't be done in a hurry. I, I think it's very important mm. that this this is done quite slowly because very often the children are, the parents are, are blindsided and they don't know. They don't know the acronym. Yeah. They don't know yeah. the word. It's a lot to learn. <laughs> it's a lot. Hence our entire podcast. <laughs> and I, I laugh at myself at the beginning when I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I kind of get the guts of it. And it's like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's so much there. Can I offer maybe kind of a different reaction? Like, I think for me, I've noticed that there are parents that fall into these different categories, parents who are having a very hard time owning their authority, to which your advice is perfectly suited. And then there are other parents, I think, who maybe because of their terror, or maybe because of their personality style, or maybe they're really afraid that this is the end of our child, like they go in with a lot of force And they have just kind of tons of one-liners or long drawn out debates. And I don't think that's helpful. So I I would take like your idea and maybe combine it with more of a long-term approach. So I often say to parents, you have to hold in your mind a really strong, confident belief of what you think is going on while strategically like working with your kid in baby steps. So there are some kids that I think if, if you say, you know, honey, I see that you're exploring your gender, but I don't believe that people are born with a gender identity. And you kind of explain why, like that might be great, but there are other kids who are kind of playing out the adolescent tasks of rebellion and all these things through their gender identity or maybe they're in extreme pain and this has become the thing they latch on to. And I think for some parents, if they just swat it down every single time, the kid gets very alienated. And so like in those situations, I say, hold that perspective in your mind that what you believe is going on is true. And also just ask a lot of questions, be interested in what the kid says, try to connect but avoid being like basically pushed into decisions. Like don't let your kid bully you into using their pronouns. But if, if you can approach the kid with a perspective of, I see that this is important to you. I want to understand what's going on. You can do that without letting go of your own perspective on what you think is going on. Does that make sense? I know it's a bit vague, but I think there are cases where parents have to be careful not to, like batter the kid with their own opinions. Yeah. Oh, I, I I completely agree with you. I might I might have misspoke insofar as I my big emphasis is going quiet and figuring out how you're going mm. to how you're going to approach this. I just think it's so important that you don't shoot your mouth off in those first couple of weeks. I think a lot of damage gets done in those first couple of weeks. And that's why it's so crucial when somebody emails me, I'm so inclined to say you know, go to a, go to a few parent meetings quite quickly, if at all possible, because you'll be amazed at what you say may be taken down in evidence and used against you for many years to come. So mm. it's important that you, you don't speak out of turn. You don't kind of, you can feel very kind of, some people, like you say, they can be very um, kind of, this is ridiculous. They can be quite dismissive, thinking, I'll just, I'll put you right. And yeah. that does not work. It really right. doesn't. Well, right. I certainly don't hear about it work. And I think it creates a very hostile response. So the script, the script that the parent should have, what do you think should it contain if you were to write one for them? Well, this is why I, I think it's so dependent on the relationship with the kid. How old is the kid? How indoctrinated is the kid? Like there are so many moving parts. And I have to say, you know, um, I have heard stories from parents that I literally never would have thought could be helpful that were. So like 
one family told me that they read a piece piece of Abigail Schreier's book to the kid. And the next day she desisted and like brought out all her old clothes and started drawing again and like was happy as a clam, which like that blew my wait, mind. Wait, do you know what the piece was? Because every parent will want to know what page was that. <laughs> I know, I don't know. But I mean, again, contextually, I think this was a family that was incredibly close. They had fantastic relationship with their kid. And she had been totally miserable since adopting the trans identity. There are other kids where the trans identity is actually making them feel so happy and powerful. And they're for the first time ever making friends. That's not going to work, you know? So I think rather than a script, I think it's helpful to have a couple of kind of go-to lines that you believe reflect your perspective. So for example, you know, you might just say, I don't believe that changing your body is the best way to deal with your problems. It's pretty general. It's probably true. (laughs) And it's not so inflammatory regarding the trans thing specifically. It's more a principle, right? So I think like if you have something like that, I don't think you should repeat it like a parrot or something over and over. But if your kid says, mom, I just know I'll be happier when I take testosterone, you say, I'm sure it feels that way now, but I don't think that changing your body is the best way to deal with your feelings. And you can just kind of leave it there. And I think those are kind of like seeds of wisdom that they may not sink in right now. I always tell parents, don't expect magic light bulb moments. But if you are sharing something that is grounded in wisdom and your love for your child and like general principles that are probably true, it's going to land somewhere. Yeah, I think that's a brilliant line. And another line that might help um, a parent, and like you say, just have a couple of them that, that sing to you, that kind of feel right for you. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't, I don't think parents should adopt anything that doesn't feel right for them. Right. But something along the lines of, it can feel very alluring to have one simple answer to all your problems, but there's probably about 12 answers. And oh, probably that's go, good. Yeah, it's something like that. So it's like an acknowledgement of the pain and a kind of uh, trying to expand their mind that it's not going to be one solution. It never is. No matter what mm-hmm. it is, it's always a few mm-hmm. different solutions. And I think that being fixated on the one solution is very, very satisfying, but it's not necessarily true. Yeah. And something along those lines and to go back and say that again and to go back and say that again, like this is the one solution idea. And I just Mm -hmm. lived long enough to know that there's never been one solution. It's not a case of just one thing, you know, let's say leave the school or leave the boyfriend or move house. It's it's never just that. It's always other things that that need to be, you know. Another sentence that's just kind of popped up for me is is kind of. Um, a response to the fact that many of these kids have been struggling with a lot of things for a long time and they likely feel um, like they lack capability, they lack confidence and they lack the the knowledge that I can get through it. So like something I, I sometimes recommend is for parents to say something like, honey, I know this has been a really hard time for you but I know you're strong and I know you can get through this. Having a little confidence that your kid can survive this bumpy road. And especially during the teen years, that can be really hard to remember, I think, because it's so dark for some of these kids and parents, like you've often talked about, they just want to help their kids feel better. But if you can express a little bit of like belief in your kid, like, I know you can get through this. We're going to get through this together. That can be comforting. Yeah. I've heard you mention, and it really it really hit me when you said it, that sometimes the child has given up on their old persona and mm-hmm. you're like, parents still believe in that, that mm. kid. And so kind of don't give up on yourself kind of thing. It's, it's such a lovely, lovely sentiment. I do think it can be helpful to talk about self-loathing. Um, just kind of... Being filled with self-loathing is such an unsettling and horrible place. It feels so lonely and it feels so like you'll never get out of it. Yeah. You know what? You know, there's there's a there's a lovely, lovely person that you Mm -hmm. are in front of me. And I just want us to work together. 
Mm-hmm. But you actually call it out that it, you yeah. self-loathing because I think there is a huge amount of self-loathing going on. And I think people are, uh, parents especially, are maybe inclined to tiptoe around that. They yeah. can't quite face, and I understand why, they can't quite face the fact that the kid is filled with self yes. Yeah. For sure. I mean, I think what, what's common for all of the kind of suggestions that we've put forth is that there has to be a kind of a sincerity in them. You know, like if you are thinking sincerely about what, who your child is, what, you know, they struggle with, and you kind of try to think of their underlying needs that will help you come up with some phrases or some, some ways to talk that feel authentic for you and that are most specifically applicable to your kid. Like, I think that kind of sincerity is really important, which I will just say is not the same thing as a political debate. Yeah. And do you know what? When you say that sincerity, I, I think an authenticity, I think they're key and I think they're getting dismissed. I think what happens, I was just kind of thinking about it while you were talking. I think when when our kids are very young, we, you know, we all do it. We kind of put on this cheerful, competent Everybody in the car, even when you're seething with your husband, you're like, come on now, let's have a nice day. I think a fake persona ends up being created Mm -hmm. inadvertently because we're trying to be cheerful often in the face of our annoying mother-in-law or the neighbor, or we're trying to teach them politeness to the silly man across the road. (laughs) We're kind of doing this and it's really quite fake, if you follow me. Yeah. And then... In and around between 10 and 14, they become very authentic. They become very interested in authenticity. And we're still in the, come on. Oh, my God. Yes. Yeah. And I see it when I have a meeting with parents and the client and the teenage client. I can see it. I can see how authentic the parents are with me and how articulate. And they know everything. And they're very serious. They have a serious face and their face are you know, is adult, then the child can walk in and suddenly it becomes, so now we can sit down here in the voice lines <laughs> <laughs> and everybody is lighter and brighter and more positive. And when, let's say, the teenager says something, they say, I'm glad you've said that. And they're, they're not, they're seething. <laughs> not at all glad. But the, the authenticity has so far left the building. And, mm. and this is where I think mm, my job is to bring authenticity back in here. And this is really unusual territory. And I've often said to parents who I've worked with, have you told them about your difficulty, for example, with, you know, whatever's going on at work or your And they're like, no, no, because they're they've kind of presumed my job as the parent is cheerful, cheerful competence. And I can't let my child in on any of my difficulties. I'm not saying you wail at the end of the bed to them, but they're they're so interesting. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I kind of, again, I'm thinking about this spectrum of family dynamics and I'm thinking about there are some families that are too boundaried and some that are too enmeshed. And then there's kind of a healthy place in the middle. Yeah. And enmeshed families don't do what you just said. I mean, enmeshed families let it be known exactly what they feel all the time and everyone's emotions are out on the table. And then families that are overly boundaried, their kids literally have no idea what they feel or think about anything. And everything is a strategic interaction. And that's not really, that's hard to be, I mean, you're not being authentic. So you have to find like an authentic place in the middle where you still retain the role that you have as a parent, which has to be mindful. You don't just let it all hang out all the time, but you can't be overly boundaried like the families that you mentioned. I think yeah. that's, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, I do think, I think authenticity matters. And I think often parents have to refine their authenticity because they've left it. And yeah. sometimes the unbounded parents, there's an inauthenticity with that because they go back to the kind of the screaming narrative they're used to. And yes. they don't remember to kind of hold yourself together here. Um, and as you know what I mean? And, and bring 
bring yourself into the moment of of this as opposed to just relying on your narrative. Do you follow me? Yeah. Because that can be difficult. So we've kind of given families and parents some ideas of how to think about this concept of a quote script. And interestingly, the next question that we have is also related to scripts. So yeah. um, we want to talk about, about the script. Yeah. yeah, we'll keep talking about scripts related to other people. So somebody asked about, you know, give us a liberal's guide to explaining gender issues. You know, how do I explain to friends, schools, neighbors, why I'm concerned about gender identity? Like what's an elevator pitch? Well, you kind of Sorry, I talked over you. you. You need an elevator pitch that you can use to your neighbors, to the person down the street, to your sister-in-law or to whoever. Kind of vague and distant people who are around who are going to ask questions and you know they are. And you need to be prepared and ready with your script. And, you know, it might be around names or pronouns. It might be around their style or that the child. But something along the lines of, um, you know, our, our child is, is, has been, you know, let's say call her Mary. Mary's been having a, you know, a pretty interesting time. It's been very challenging for her. She's, you know, she's going through her identity and she's exploring all her options. And, you know, she's considering name changes and pronoun changes. And she's certainly exploring her, her style. And, you know, we're, we're ready to support her in all the ways. But we do think it's our job as the adult to make sure that she doesn't foreclose any options or go too kind of into something that she wants to get out of. We think it's our job to just hold space. And that's what we're doing. And so that you've kind of something kind of that acknowledges things, but it's like, I'm the authority here. I'm the parent. You're the passing stranger. Leave us to it here. You know what I mean? Because often there's a, you know, I, I always think if we, if we write a book, we should have a chapter on, you know, well-meaning, misinformed adults. Those well-meaning, misinformed adults jump in, they bludgeon in with the presumption that they know so much more than the parents who mm. are so absorbed in it. Mm. I love I love the way you phrase that. And I, I something that really stood out was your use of the word style. This gender thing has a way of twisting up our ability to perceive what's going on. And teenagers experiment with different ways of presenting themselves to the world. And I've always thought about that as style. So I love that you said she's certainly exploring her style and we're ready to support that in all the ways. Yeah. But we think it's our job as adults to kind of hold space and not foreclose on anything. I think that's great. I think there's a few different kind of people who will say, so is it the name? Are, are we going with the name change? Or I'm going to use your child's name change. And you have to have a way as a parent to say, you know, hands up. Sorry, hang on. This is my kid. It's mm-hmm. lovely that you're so involved. I don't mm-hmm. quite involve myself and your kid as deeply as that. So we'd really appreciate if you could respect our parenting role. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So that you, you, you know, because there's too many times I've heard of, let's say, for example, the classic one is the be- the kids' best friends' parents yes. are all over the pronouns and name change. You can't help but think with a bit of glee that <laughs> it's it's that kid and it's not their kid. Do you follow mm-hmm. me? So they can they can wear their credentials of liberalism so well, but it's it's not actually happening to their family. This position, the best friends' parents is really quite important. It comes up quite often. For me, it does anyway. And I've noticed it. And it can be so damaging because suddenly the child has adults who are doing it, adults who are changing their name. And I do think that the whole change name, change pronouns, it needs to be, as we said in the social transition, needs to be recognized for the powerful intervention that it is. Mm -hmm. And adults need to be told, this is a very powerful intervention and it shouldn't Mm. be taking place clinical supervision and you're my daughter's best friend's parent your role in this is really quite peripheral so it's very nice that you're very inclined to kind of support in your way but I'm not sure you're aware that we're going through a therapeutic process we're in the middle of it and you seem to be jumping steps ahead and you're not even involved in this process so I'm not sure this is your place Mm -hmm. that's very hard to say (laughs) obviously I'm quite assertive so I can think I love it Stella (laughs) but you've got to learn them I think you've got to write them down and learn them if you have difficulty holding your assertion I just think they're so important I think it's so important 
You know, I, I want to just say I'm reading Lisa Marciano's book about motherhood Mm -hmm. and it's so brilliant. And she talks about learning to kind of own your authority and how having a child, of course, you know, necessitates that. And I, I think part of what you're saying here is that people have to, well, parents have to be able to own their authority because, and I sometimes tell parents in consultation, you are what your child needs the most. You, you are what your child needs the most. And it's, it's necessary that you kind of step up into that role so that your child can be loved and guided by you. So I think that's the way you phrase that is really um, confident. And I like that. Yeah. And, you know, parenting does give us, I'm so glad you said that about Lisa's book, because it's a beautiful book. It's called Motherhood. It's so beautiful by Lisa Marciano. And it, it does talk about the lessons we learn when we become mothers. And we do learn some really quite deep lessons. And one of them is very definitely learning to stand up. You know, we all say we'll take a bullet for our child. Learning to stand up for our child is a really hard lesson. Mm. And most of us learn it. And this is yet another learning to stand up for our child. This isn't in the playground. It isn't to the bully. It's to all these people who presume they know your child better. Yeah. And that's where you have to kind of, in a way, ground yourself by putting your shoulders back and maybe putting your hand up to kind of, as in the kind of gesture of stop mm-hmm. and say, we're in the middle of a process and it's yeah. really yeah. intricate. And my child, use the word, if at all possible, my child is vulnerable right now and we're in the middle of something please don't presume you know more about what's going on in our family. And I won't presume what's going on in your family. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's so important and it's, it's really, really difficult to do mm. because very often people are getting dismissed as transphobic when they're not, they're loving and concerned and they're trying to be cautious. And it's amazing. We are most conservative about the things that we most care about because we're most cautious because we're most it's the most fragile for us mm-hmm. we're, it's like our children are like a ming vase we're bringing it across the shiny floor gently and so carefully while you know the school coach is determined to change the pronouns he's got like 70 kids under his care yeah he's not bringing our child across the room yeah. like a ming vase yeah. we're transitioning them to adulthood with care and caution and concern mm-hmm. and yeah we get it wrong but it's not generally through lack of love or care or yeah. concern. Yeah, that's, I mean, everybody that I have met is trying their best, you know, and each family has the tools at their disposal based on their own upbringings and their own kind of family traumas. But everybody is really trying their best to do what they think will benefit their kid in the long run. And of course, there are some families that have biases or maybe some homophobia or maybe some transphobia. And of course, those are things that are, you know, important to reflect on. But the vast majority of families I meet, whatever their belief systems, they're really trying their best. And could I just say um, about the counterscript as well, and you know, for the, for the liberals guide, there's an awful lot of liberals who aren't very engaged in this subject and who presume that they know, they presume it's gay, you know, 21st century gay mm-hmm. and, they know what's going on and it's very important I think for for parents to kind of to acknowledge that to say something like I know you're presuming this is the same as as coming out as gay and that's your that's your thoughts I don't think there's any chance that you've studied this as often or as deeply as I have I've really immersed myself in in the in the kind of research about this and I don't think it's the same as gay and I'd really I'd really appreciate if you could give some more thought to this because to equate it with sexual orientation is doing my child, my vulnerable child, a disservice. Yeah. I Maybe actually wrote it out. Yeah. I made a video about that and it I even created this kind of like side by side chart of why gay and trans are really different. So we'll link that in the show notes because I think if families are trying to kind of curate some sort of talking points for themselves so they can feel more confident when confronted about these issues that might be helpful. Yeah. So shall we move on to the next question? Okay. Yeah. So this next one is about power struggles. Do you want to read that one? Okay. Hang on a sec. Yeah. Um, as it says, I can't deny her feelings. 
I believe that she thinks this is her identity for now, but I think we should stay open-minded for future options. That's not enough for her. Shall I affirm and pay her respect in pronouncing her chosen name? It feels like a pure power struggle sometimes. Mm. And you know what it is? Very often is. What do yeah. you think? It it definitely feels like a power struggle. And um, I think it's hard because the, the, even the term power struggle has got a lot of associated ideas with it. I think sometimes parents think, well, I don't want to get into a power struggle. So maybe that means I just say yes to everything. And I don't think that's necessarily the best way to avoid a power struggle. If anything, you have just contributed to a power struggle. And there are times when each parent has to kind of evaluate what is the hill worth dying on. And sometimes you're like, you know what, I'm going to give her the pronouns because in my in my estimation here, that's really not that big of a deal. So I'm not saying that you should put your foot down about every single thing. But avoiding power struggles um, is something more than simply capitulating to a young person's demands. What do you think? That's very interesting what you said. Sometimes I'm just still thinking about it. And it's right. Sometimes giving in is actually exacerbating the power struggle. Mm-hmm. Because it wants more power and the power goes to their head and it's all about power then. And it's really, really kind of exciting for them. Um, I think it's it, it I think power struggles are a kind of a part of the adolescent years. And it's the you know, it's the it's the adolescent's task to push the boundaries. It's the parents pa- task to hold the boundaries. And that is fundamentally a power struggle. And the power struggle never stops. And it's it's an appropriate power struggle, if you follow me. The power mm-hmm. struggle never stops. And it should be. That's what should be happening at that age. And it is, it's stressful. And so it's easy to kind of feel very exhausted by the power struggle. And just mm. think, I don't know. I don't know. Everybody's telling me this, so I might mm-hmm. as well go. I've lost all kind of energy for this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I know some parents contact me and they're like, I'm the only one holding out. What's the point in holding out? I might as well just give in. And you know what? Maybe they're right. I think we don't know. Like, we really don't know what's going to happen. There's so many kids who've been socially transitioned. And what will happen in the long run with these kids, we do not know. There is no evidence yeah. base. Yeah. So this is very much we're going by the stories, the anecdotes, the narratives, the people we meet. It's all, it's all kind of word of mouth mm-hmm. really and so I do want to emphasize that because often I think you well definitely me I don't know about me you but definitely me I overemphasize oh my god pronouns watch out it could concretize the identity and I, I sometimes think watch yourself Stella because you don't know mm-hmm. you, you really do not know mm-hmm. and maybe that's there's going to be a fluidity for all we know about pronouns that we can't even envisage because there was things happening 30 years ago that we couldn't envisage the internet. We couldn't yeah. envisage social media. There's so yeah. many concepts we couldn't envisage. Yeah. God knows what we'll be handling in 30 years. God only knows. And honestly, for all the critiques that I have seen about my perspective being ideological, I am the first one to say I'm surprised all the time by the work, the, this work that I do and the stories I hear. I don't think there's a formula. And like I said to you, sometimes this identity exploration is developmentally appropriate and will kind of come and go on its own. So there's no, there's no formula to say, if you use a kid's pronouns, you've doomed them to medical intervention for the rest of their lives. It's just, it's just not, that's not a reasonable position to take though. I have lots of reasons that parents I think should be cautious. I think the important thing is though, in in my perspective, when it comes to this issue of power struggle is to parent with confidence And I know that's hard because this is the most disorienting thing you could ever go through. But the the stories that I've heard from families who have gone through this whole gender thing and come out on the other end, either stronger or maybe quite shaken up, but they feel like they've been able to put it behind them, have been parents who really do a lot of kind of soul searching to figure out what is the approach I'm going to use 
And I'm going to parent with confidence as much as I can. Like they might on the inside be very, very nervous, but they have a plan. They work with their husband or wife and they kind of have a strategy and they have to kind of anchor themselves in for the rocky waters. And so another thing that comes to my mind when I think about power struggles is that it's normal and appropriate for teenagers to sometimes be very upset with the boundaries that their families set for them. And I think sometimes, not always, but sometimes when you have a kid who's historically been super compliant, straight A student, uber responsible, never gets in trouble, and all of a sudden the family has to say, you know what, honey, we're not doing that. And the kid gets upset they don't know what to do because they've never upset their child before. And that can feel so wounding and scary. So sometimes when there's a power struggle, I wonder, is it because this family has never really had to deal with their child not liking a boundary they set? I couldn't agree more. I think very often I think these, this family that are in front of me are unused to fighting. They're unused to disagreeing. There is no experience. There's no kind of we've got through this before. That yeah. isn't, they don't have that. It's like this is the first time we're having a disagreement. We're not used to it. We're all conflict avoidant and we're all just absolutely kind of having heart attacks at the fact that we're not agreeing. And so they kind of, this is where the inauthenticity comes back in. So they pretend to agree. And I find I'm really quite surprised at how many parents that I meet are pretending to agree with their children and that they're not agreeing with their children and the kid doesn't actually know it. Yeah. And the parent is actually up all night, you know, reading the utter opposite of what the child is reading. And nobody knows it. It's all, okay, mm, maybe. Mm, and dodging and it's all it's kind of fakery there's no there's no truth in the household you know what I mean so that that's an issue but I I think going back to the kind of um the power struggle that can happen it can be a very quiet power struggle so that the child is silently pulling one way and the, the parent is politely and silently pulling the other way mm-hmm. and it's all just pass the bread there darling <laughs> it's all very quiet and fun mm-hmm. and exhausting as a yeah. result because there's this simmering sea of emotion and nobody is actually acknowledging it there's an awful lot unsaid yeah. And I think that's really, really exhausting to live through. And that's where serious despair in the middle of the night comes in for the parents because yeah. th- there's so little in authentic- there's so little authenticity left. Yeah. It's exhausting. I I often find that when there's a family in this place, the the thing that might kind of break that tension is a conversation that is deeply authentic and calls out what they're seeing. So like, for example, it might be something like, uh, I want to talk to you later, you know, like, let's go grab some tea. Let's go get some ice cream. You know, I want to have a chat. And if you say something like, look, I understand that over the last few months, there's become this elephant in the room. And when you first came out to us, I know we reacted really strongly. It probably hurt your feelings a lot. And we're sorry for blowing up or for ignoring you or whatever. But we're a family. And in order for us to get through this, we have to be willing to have some tough conversations. I know I'm not perfect. I don't always say the right thing. And you don't always say the right thing. But we have to try because I care a lot about you. And I see how important this is to you, you know. So I think like being able to call what's actually happening like the dynamics between you, which is something we do in therapy, right? As, as therapists with individual clients, like we have to call what's going on between us. And sometimes that can be a way to soften the tension. And that is very important 
to um, maintain as a conversation about what's happening between us and not, and I'm going to show you this detransition article. Like the power struggle sometimes comes from a volleying back and forth of like, quote, information, like the kids sending you transactivist stuff and you're sending them social contagion stuff. And that really shuts down the conversation. But I think being able to acknowledge what's happened in the relationship and how hard it is to actually talk about these things is, is kind of relieving because it's the truth. Yeah, it's liberating. So there's a couple of things you said there. One, you can talk about the elephant in the room. And another thing you can talk about is rather than let's talk about gender, because we both know we'll get upset. Let's talk about how we can't talk about things. And so, you know what I mean? So you're actually just talking yeah. about the, the kind of silence and coldness that's come in. And wouldn't it be nice if we could talk about things? And it seems such a pity that there's one world that we can't talk about. And I'm not saying we have to talk about that today. What I'd like to talk about is my sadness about how we're not able to talk. Oh, and so, yeah. Yeah. And just leave it at that. And let's talk about how it does feel like there's a coldness between us. There's never been a coldness before. Yeah. It does feel very sad. It makes me sad. I wish we could. Mm-hmm. Maybe it'll come back. I know mm-hmm. we won't agree. So we don't need to talk about it tonight. But can we just talk about us? Us. And that's all. And that can soften a little bit. So you're not talking about the elephant. You're talking about the fact that there is an elephant in the room. If mm-hmm. you're I love that. And yeah, it's one step removed and it's it's a way to kind of way to bring in, remind everybody involved of the love and of the desire to be happy and to emphasize at that point that there seems to be a lack of happiness between us and a lack of, of pleasure between us. And can we, even with this elephant in the room, can we maybe watch a film together and have a nice time? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So that we're kind of complimenting it. Yeah. But the second thing is it can be helpful as well, I think, perhaps, to bring up there seems to be a power struggle going on here. And you're actually naming it. You're saying this is a power struggle and it's appropriate for us to have power struggles. It's po- appropriate for you to seek power and it's appropriate for me to keep power because I'm your parent. I'm always going to be more conservative. I'm always going to be more cautious. You're going to be more reckless because you're the teenager who's trying to live your life. I'm the parent who's trying to keep you safe. It's it's kind of fundamentally at odds with each other. I love that. Yeah. And that kind of gives an in to the kind of kid to go, okay, your, your job is to be boring and conservative. And it's like, yeah. yeah. And I think that's really helpful because kids kids need to understand that the relationship they have with their parents is always going to have that kind of tension in it. And it doesn't mean something is inherently wrong. And this goes back to the idea of perhaps families who have never really had to say no to their kid about anything before. And this might be the first time where you have to use that kind of um, line, which sometimes I'll say, you know, my job is to think about your well-being, not just in the short term of what you want right now, but in general, my job is to get you to be, a fully functioning, happy, healthy, independent, creative adult. And sometimes a, a kid has got the kind of personality where that's never really been an issue before. Like you can be the parent and never have to say no or never have to challenge your child or never have to refuse something they want. So this is in some ways kind of an opportunity for families to step into that role that is really hard for some parents, I think. And I just want to point out that what we're saying at this point in the episode is very much could be written in the parent's script. So the parent could say mm. in their script, my job is to keep your long term welfare at, at the center. Yeah. Your job is to push against that and yeah. to be, you know, to push against the boundaries. And I, I, I do think it's kind of helpful for the parent to kind of sometimes say that, you know, we don't. We don't like conflict in this family. We we aren't used to it. This isn't a, a, a kind of a comfortable place for any of us. That's okay, but it does mean that we're kind of avoiding things. And um, maybe we can work together and become, you know, better at handling conflict. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that be nice? Because I find going back, I know I'm really beating this, but I think it's a very big point. So many parents, they don't want to admit that there's any flaws in the family relations. <laughs> yeah. So they don't want to say this is a conflict avoidant family. They're like, but we can't, we can't. It's almost like they can't <laughs> say that this will ruin our brand to the child. <laughs> Her brand, I, I, I love it. I think it's much more helpful for the parent to acknowledge, you know, no more than my own family, we have some very deep flaws. 
fundamentally in the foursome that is our family. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And we do. 100%. My God, we do. Yeah. And, and that's kind of what I mean about sincerity. Like you're just being really honest. Like, hey, these are my flaws as a mom. Sometimes I do this too much or that too much. You know, and and I think too, like the last thing I'll say about power struggles, if there has been some kind of a, a damage to the relationship, there there is a need to to repair it. And that is the parent's job, you know, to to perhaps say, I can imagine that when I said this or that, that really hurt your feelings. I see this is really important to you. And I believe that you're struggling with your identity this way. And I'm sorry that I said something very dismissive. But I think sometimes parents try to air quote, apologize by just giving into the demands. And that's not the same thing, right? I think you can say, you know, changing your name and pronouns is a really important decision. I'm not really sure I'm ready to make a decision on that. However, I acknowledge that your feelings were probably very hurt when we had that fight the other day or whatever, right? So you can still apologize and repair without capitulating to the specific checklist that your kid has. Mm -hmm. And you can say as well, yes, I know everybody has changed your name and pronouns and I haven't, and I know I'm holding out, but nobody cares about you as much as I do. So I'm holding out. (laughs) (laughs) You you know what I mean? I know. Um, You know, you do do have an awful special place as a parent. And uh, I think it's important that we we remember that about ourselves, that we we, we are in a very special position. It's very difficult. It's very difficult, the power struggles. It's very difficult not to get exhausted. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of parents feel really despairing about it. I really do. Okay, I lied. One more thing I'll say. I I think, (laughs) well, that exhaustion also comes from the fact that when this type of struggle enters a family, it usually zaps the fun out of everything. So parents do need to find a way to reconnect in a lighthearted, pleasant, no gender talk, low stakes, enjoyable way with their kid. That kind of levity and that lightness is crucial to keep the relationship going. You have to have fun as a family as well. So in addition to these deep kind of conversations where you acknowledge the struggle and all that stuff, also just lighten it up sometimes because that will take you a long way. Building positive moments and funny memories with your kid goes a long way. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. It's so important. It's so easy for it to become like the gender years. And I want to, uh, and they can really, really, they can sap the family and the impact on the siblings is phenomenal. It's really, really deep. And it can really grate on the family. I want to say this point because it's so important. I've been working as a, as a therapist for years. So I've seen lots of parents over the years go through some really difficult times with teenagers, nothing to do with gender, but just as traumatic. Mm-hmm in different way. Now, people with gender would say, oh, but there wasn't the medical industry and it wasn't this and it wasn't that. And yet I could say I've seen parents really, really in dark, dark places as a result of the distress the child is in. And one child can kind of sap all the happiness of the family because that one child is so unhappy. And I meet them, you know, years later and, you know, the parents can look shook thinking back on those years, just saying those years that they were just, they were just awful. They were mm-hmm. awful for all of us. And, you know, I'll never be the same. I'll mm. never actually be the same. And I meet them years later. I only met one recently. And he kind of looked at me. You could see he was remembering everything by looking at me <laughs> those days. And, you know, you will get through them. You will get through them. And you will look back and shudder maybe and say they were really, really hard. But it's just important to remember the long game here. Yeah. That there's a lot of things going on. There's other children in the family. There's moments of fun. You can just say break from gender. We're just mm-hmm. going to do something That's different. right. Must, because must do that. you've got to play the long game. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to look at the next question here. So this listener asks... In episode 14, you mentioned gender dysphoria versus social dysphoria. This was very interesting to me. I would love to hear you expand on this. Are there tips for helping your child with social dysphoria that are different from gender dysphoria? I don't think my child has true gender dysphoria, but I think she's become really insecure and self-conscious during COVID. So this has become like a mask for the outside world and has given her instant cool factor among certain peers. 
Okay. Social dysphoria versus gender dysphoria. This is kind of a new, a new designation that I think has evolved with the uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria FTM population. I think it is specific. I, I don't How think. Could, could we get it in a sentence? <laughs> no, I know. It was, that was even like audible or understandable to anybody else out there. <laughs> but keep going. Sorry. No, I mean, I think that, well, I, I'm not sure about this, but the impression that I have is that classic gender dysphoria is more sex dysphoria. And I okay. think gender dysphoria in today's kind of teenage onset cohort is called social dysphoria when we might actually be talking about things like I'm ashamed, I'm embarrassed, I'm feeling insecure, I'm feeling self-conscious about my body. And those are all social feelings that have to do with self-awareness and the awareness of how you are perceived to others. And of course, that's part of sex dysphoria too. But when I hear kids talk about social dysphoria with no sex dysphoria, I'm like, "Mm, that's not classic gender dysphoria. Yes, you're right. And when I look at ROGD kids, I think so much of this is social dysphoria. So much of this is dependent on how I'm being perceived out by the world. And the world's opinion of me is driving everything. Mm -hmm. So the world's opinion of me is making me hate my breasts. The world's opinion of me is making me hate various parts of me. And it feels very, very like social dysphoria. And I think we could really do worse than bringing social dysphoria out into the open, talking about it an awful lot starting to explain it, starting to kind of push back. Maybe parents might want to push back and say, this is more social dysphoria than gender dysphoria. And maybe as a as a concept, I think we could do worse than bringing this in. Now, I am, as a psychotherapist, always loath to bring in more terms. I, I know. Just, oh. the, whole, the whole industry. <laughs> and I really, I have a dark eye on the psychologist, as I have said before, we're bringing in all these terms and all these diagnoses. Mm-hmm, I think it hasn't mm-hmm, helped our mental mm-hmm. health. I don't think it's been good. However, sometimes you have to fight fire with fire and this might be one of them. <laughs> and um, maybe bringing in the concept of social dysphoria might free up ROGD kids to realise there's more going on here than gender. Yeah, It's bigger than that and society is really impacting you. And actually we can change society because teenagers are so idealistic. We can change society. We can mm-hmm. really work mm-hmm. on this. This mm-hmm. is so doable. Mm-hmm. What what tips do you have for this mom? She's saying like, how is there a different way to support somebody with gender dysphoria versus social dysphoria? Yeah, I think there is because I think this is stuff that we would have learned way back in the day when we were growing up. Like, you know, it's not your business what other people think of you. You know, some people you're just not going to be liked. I remember it was so liberating for me to hear that you're not going to be liked by all people and you won't like all people. And you're going to have to live with that. Yeah, stuff. yeah. You just have to live with that. And Who I said love- that to you? Somebody said it to me when I was, uh, it, was a, it was a guy I really liked. And he said it really straight because he had that in his mind and like that's the way life was. And I was like, oh, my God, he's so cool about the fact that people don't like him. Yeah, it's liberating. Oh, so liberating. I think things like that, just by kind of being conscious of you're giving them the kind of the old fashioned kind of sensibilities of, you know what I mean? Other people are going to misinterpret you, misjudge you prejudge you underestimate you and your job is not to lose not to derail yeah for sure that's a great that's great I mean makes me think about the locus of control you know you can't go into someone else's head and tinker with their perception of you so all you can do is kind of accept yourself as you are and you'll meet great people who love you and appreciate you and adore you and think you're wonderful and you'll meet some people who they're just not your cup of tea or like they're not, you're not their cup of tea. I I really like that. And kind of giving power back to the young person to let go of that responsibility to make people think a certain thing of you. Cause you just don't have that much control. 
And there's a there's an awful untruth kind of going around now that if you can get people to do your pronouns and to do your name and to say the right things, that therefore they are thinking the right thing about you. And that's not true. That's a lie. Just because people are saying things doesn't mean they're they're thinking it. And I think the idealism of these kids, they honestly think the gullibility, the naivety that they honestly think if they say it, they mean it. And it's like, uh, really? Not really, because I remember I was kind of taught as a diktat, you're not really allowed to listen to other people's opinions. If, if you're not allowed to eavesdrop, you're not allowed to listen to oh, other interesting. people talking about you. You're not allowed to do it because you'll get very, very hurt if you hear other people talking about you. Mm. Now, I know that's kind of harsh and shocking, but it was very deeply learned. Oh, yeah. You're kind of not allowed to learn that. You're not allowed. You have to put down the phone if you're ever in a... A, a phone and you're in the wrong you know what I mean you mm -hmm. just it's it's just not good for you to hear the unvarnished truth about you when you're not in the room I know that's yeah. why the comments are on the internet I mean I we're so we're so inundated with everyone else's opinions of us now so maybe that, that's why I I'm able for it so much because people are always asking me yeah, cause I, the other that? day I was like is your life better without Twitter I think we were talking to Millie oh, yeah. or Carol or somebody and somebody. you were like oh I love Twitter I just got on it it's fantastic <laughs> I do think it's great but I do think I, I just literally it's, it's people don't like me yeah that's okay yeah that's really great and I mean, trying to think in terms of the social dysphoria, I would just just try to use those general kinds of tips for your daughter. And I think there was a, a, a kind of Twitter thread or something recently where a bunch of people who are trans identified people are saying something like, um, it, it hurts to be misgendered, but what hurts even more is when people use my pronouns, but I can tell they still see me as their biological sex. I don't know if you saw that. There were a bunch of tweets around that same no, theme. I didn't see that. And oh man, I mean, that is a recipe for misery because you cannot change someone's perception of you. And, you know, it doesn't have to be about gender. You might go somewhere and you, you know, run into somebody that you have like, bad blood with and they smile in your face and are polite to you are you going to be upset that they were fake mm. nice like mm. everyone has to be fake nice sometimes and mm. sometimes pronouns are fake nice and sorry but that's just what it is sometimes and there's nothing yeah. you can do about it so I think helping your daughter to understand you cannot change someone's perception of you and some of this is developmental I think like as we get older we understand that better so some of this will take time. For, for, for that parent, I'd also say, like, try to bring the conversation out of gender and into social. So kind of social contexts that don't have anything to do with gender of that person thinks I'm rude, even though he doesn't realize what was the context of why I yeah. let that car go first. So That's that you're constantly right. bringing it out into the world beyond gender. The people are constantly misinterpreting us. Yes, critical thinking. Yeah. yeah, it'll trickle it'll trickle into all these different contexts. So we have two more quick questions I think we can get to. So this first one says, where and how do we draw the line between transsexual and transgender? How can we best communicate or define the differences between these two things to the wider, less informed public? So since you're a big media person, do you have a a quick mm. elevator pitch on this. It seems pretty well, straightforward, but what do you uh, think? I think for, for me, like a transsexual is um, from the old cohort who, who, who medicalized their dysphoria because they couldn't live um, in the, in the sex that they were born. And then transgender came in in 1996 as a concept that kind of included both transsexuals and transvestites. And it was kind of an umbrella term and it's kind of it's it's brought everything forward. And it's interesting that transvestites as a concept seem to have left the building. We don't hear very much about transvestites anymore. And everything is in transgender. That's not really an elevator pitch, but that's how I <laughs> conceive it. How do you yeah. conceive it? I mean, I think what's tricky is that as it stands right now, a lot of people who are like, I'm going to say biologically transsexual insofar as they have had surgeries to change their biology 
don't identify as transsexual. And yet there are people who still do find the label transsexual very useful and call themselves transsexual. So I think that's why it's tricky. Very often with a transsexual, they have had surgery um, in their genitals. But what I mean is that a lot of people today who have had genital surgery don't like the term transsexual and they don't use it for themselves. So I think the way you explain the kind of chronological changes in terminology is helpful. Yeah. Well, last last thing here, we wanted to just kind of let the listeners know that it's on our radar. We've had a lot of questions from parents of adult children who have uh, started identifying as trans very suddenly. And I don't know about you, but I would say almost always after some really difficult life event, like after a divorce or after being let go from their job or something very disruptive. And these are cases where parents are so, they feel so out of touch because this young person usually, you know, this adult lives somewhere else. Perhaps they have their own house or their own place. And so the parent is watching from the periphery and has no idea what to do. So we plan to do a whole episode on this adult uh, coming out. Brilliant. Brilliant. I'm looking forward to this because it's kind of come just like the boys came after the girls with ROGD. The adults are coming after the teenagers, as far as I can see in cohorts that are are suddenly identifying as trans. Well, this was an interesting listener questions episode. Um, For our listeners, if you have more questions, please don't hesitate to send them our way. We really love receiving them. We really do. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is partially sponsored by RIME, Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics. RIME is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. If you found value in our show, please review us on iTunes and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash wider lens pod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.